for this morning. We're going to be in Leviticus, probably not a book that brings great emotions of joy to your heart, but hang in there with me. I'm going to be restarting in verse 3 of Leviticus 1. It says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it in pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Then if you jump down to chapter 2, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, and he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and the oil with all the incense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering that is a pleasant aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offering. When I was seven years old, I convinced my cousin, who was five years old, that we should walk to the store and obtain two brand new trucks for ourselves. He thought that was a good idea, and so off we went. Now, the store was a good mile, mile and a half away, down numerous... Streets, and then we had to walk, walk alongside a four-lane highway. Fortunately, it had sidewalks. And eventually, we got to the store. And we walked in through the front door. We found the toy aisle. We walked down the aisle, and we took our time picking out two very large, brand-new toy trucks. We picked them off the shelf. We walked back down the aisle. We walked out the door and proceeded to walk home. Now, a seven-year-old, it takes at least 30 minutes to walk a mile. So, given that we were in no hurry, uh, we'd probably been gone an hour and a half, maybe two hours. And we were having the time of our lives. We had just procured the best toys known to man. And as we rounded the corner to the street of our house, we heard tires screeching. And then we heard very loud voices of my mom and my aunt who were not sharing in our joy. Suddenly, reality came crashing in. I was in deep trouble. The guilt, the shame, and the fear began to wash over me and I felt the disapproval and the disappointment of my mom and my aunt I felt their anger at putting their, my little cousin at risk on a big street. I was guilty and, and I knew it. I was experiencing the destructiveness of sin and I didn't know how to undo it. 
What do you do with a guilty conscience? What do you do with the emotional, the relational, the psychological, the spiritual harm that's done to you when you sin? How do you get rid of guilt and actually restore your relationship with God? Now, the people of Israel at the very end of the book of Exodus, were wrestling with this problem. They had brazenly disobeyed God, and they didn't know how to undo it. An impartial answer to that question, God told them to build a tabernacle. And once they had erected the tabernacle, it says that God appeared, and it describes his appearing this way at the end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God was present, but yet his very presence highlighted that you couldn't approach God because of his holiness, because of who he was. And so the question still remained, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with the fact that even when God is present, you can't approach him? How do you restore the relationship with God when you sin? And then, out of the tent of meeting, God speaks. In the very first verse of Leviticus 1, it says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When one of you brings an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock from the herd or from the flock. There had been hints in Genesis and Exodus of the role that a sacrifice would play in forgiveness. But now God begins to explain in detail how you would restore your relationship with God via a sacrifice. In fact, God actually lays out five different types of sacrifices that deal with sin. Now, at first glance, if you're like me, you think one sacrifice is overkill, let alone five. But you're going to be amazed at how relevant these five sacrifices are to your day-to-day -day life. Now, the Old Testament sacrificial system was complex, partly because it had to deal with not only individual sin, but sins of the family, sins of the community, sins of the leaders and the priests, sins of the nation. And the sacrificial system was able to address all of that. But it's way too much to cover in one message. So for our time today, we're just going to look at the, the sacrifices that apply to an individual. How does someone like you and me get relationally right with God after we sin? Now, some of what we're going to cover is going to seem a bit odd. Because it's so far removed from our day-to-day -day life. But, but hang in there with me. It's going to be a little like going on a hike. When you first go on a hike, all you can see is a few trees in front of you. But by the time you get to the summit, the view is breathtaking. And that's what you're going to see this morning. 
Now, remember, the Israelites were people just like us. They had hopes, they had fears, they had success, they had failures, they had sin. And when they sinned, just like us, they felt guilty. Their sinful actions caused harm both to the relationship with God and the relationship to others. They, too, wanted to restore their relationship with God. So how did the sacrificial system accomplish that? How is it that a sacrifice restored the relationship with God? Great question, but before we get to that, there's a couple of things you gotta understand. First with, what did they offer and, and why did they offer it? Depending on the sacrifice, you sacrificed one of two things, either an animal with its blood or grain which would then be made into bread. Now, blood was central to the animal sacrifice because it highlighted the taking of a life. Leviticus tells us that the life of an animal is in the blood. And since the penalty for sin, God said, is death, there has to be the shedding of blood. There has to be the taking of a life for there to be forgiveness. In this case, the life of the animal is taken instead of the life of a person. The other thing about the animal is it had to be a perfect animal, i.e. unblemished. Sin is serious. And the sinner was to sacrifice his best to God because the, the sacrificial system wasn't it wasn't just this mindless act, this ritual that you did. Rather, it was an act of faith and repentance. And one of the ways that you showed God that you really were sorry was you offered him your best. The other type of offering was grain. Now, obviously, grain makes bread, which is also required for life. If you think about it, that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. You need bread to live. So when you gave up your bread as a sacrifice, you are actually giving up something you needed for life. Now let's look at how the sacrifice was actually done. Again, there were five basic sacrifices, and they're laid out in Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And four of them are animal sacrifices. And you heard, as I read Leviticus 1, the way it was done. But it probably didn't really register. So let's just for a minute look at it. So there was the role of the worshiper, the one who was asking for forgiveness, and there was the role of the priest. So the first thing the worshiper would do is he would present the animal to the priest. Now, depending on your economic condition, there were different things you could offer. If you were wealthy, you were to bring a bull. If you were kind of middle class, you could bring sheep or a goat. And if you were poor, a turtle dove or a pigeon. So even in the sacrificial system, God is compassionate. Then the worshiper would lay hands on the animal and would confess the sin over the animal kind of symbolically transferring the sin to the animal. 
then the worshiper would kill the animal, would slit the neck of the animal and drain the blood into a bowl. And then the worshiper would cut up the animal and give the pieces parts to the priest. The priest's role was to take these parts and put them on the altar. That's where they would be burnt up. They would take the blood and they would sprinkle some of it on the altar. The rest they would pour out at the base of the altar. And then for most of the sacrifices, some of the food was then given to the priests. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't sacrificed a goat in a while. Actually, I've never sacrificed a goat. But due to the power of YouTube, I actually watched one. It's nasty. A goat has about a gallon of blood. And when you slit the neck of a goat, that stuff goes everywhere. And it's just nasty. But part of that is because sin is nasty. See, I always thought the priest did the, the killing of the animal. No, no, no. The worshiper did. In other words, you had to understand your sin was causing the death of this animal. Now, the other sacrifice, the fifth sacrifice, was the grain offering or the cereal offering. And the worshiper would put the grain together, had to have a certain amount of frankincense and incense, and it had to be cooked a certain way. But you could either bring it uncooked or cooked. And then you would offer it to the priest. The priest would take a handful of the cereal or part of the bread, would burn it on the altar, and then the rest of it was food for the priest. The cereal offering, a little less gnarly, but still extremely significant. So now that you have the basics, let's look at the five different offerings. What did they accomplish? Each offering was dealing with an aspect of sin that you might not readily be aware of or you might not stop and think about. But each sacrifice brings out the reality that sin destroys, but the sacrifice restores. You see, when I stole that truck from the store, I had done something wrong. I was guilty. And the first sacrifice that God shares with the people of Israel, it deals with the guilt of the worshiper. The sacrifice was all about the worshiper's guilt. There was a need for an atonement. Atonement is just a fancy word for saying God's going to cover up the sin via a blood sacrifice that results in the removal of guilt from the worshiper, thus making you acceptable to God again. You see, feeling bad for our sinful actions is right, but feeling bad doesn't deal with the guilt. I felt bad that I had stolen the truck, but I was still guilty. And God's penalty for sin is death. The animal had to die in order for the sin to be atoned for. The result of the burnt offering was forgiveness and the restoration 
of the relationship with God. It was focused on repentance. The offering was a rededication of the worshiper to say, I'm sorry for my sin, and I'm committing to living a more righteous life in the future. You see, sin destroys, but this sacrifice restored the, the righteousness that was lost due to sin. Also, by enticing my cousin to come along with me, I incurred the wrath of my aunt. I had placed her son in danger. I had personally offended her. I had offended God. Basically, I had thumbed my nose at God and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. You see, the second offering was the cereal offering, the grain offering. And this offering was focused around appeasing God's wrath. You see, you just can't demand that God not be angry at you. You might rationalize and think, well, God is loving. He should just forgive me. But actually, no, he really shouldn't. What a righteous God should do is punish you for your sin. A righteous God feels wrath at what was done wrong. It's a righteous response to sin. And so the cereal offering was to appease God's wrath over my sin, but then it was also to express gratitude that God was willing to forgive via the animal sacrifice. And so restoring the relationship with God requires also appeasing God's wrath for the sin committed in order to obtain mercy, in order to obtain favor. When we sin, God is angry. You see, sin destroys. But this sacrifice restores peace, appeasing the wrath of God. Now, my mom is an identical twin. So my dad died when I was young, and we kind of grew up with this big extended family. And my actions had affected both of these families. And while there was joy that we arrived home alive, there was not joy. There wasn't peace. And from the perspective of a seven-year-old, I just assumed I was going to be delivered to the police and go to jail. I thought basically life was over. But my mom and my aunt were gracious. Relationships were restored. And I had been delivered to live life another day. I was very grateful. You see, the third sacrifice was the peace offering. It was a celebration of life with God because of deliverance. The offering was relationally focused around a celebration, around a meal. The sacrifice was a giving of thanks to God 
for, for delivering someone either from sickness or from their enemies so that they could live life in community. There, there was a, a joy to this celebration, thanking God that, hey, I'm still a part of the community even though I'm a sinner. You see, oftentimes sickness, but especially being conquered by your enemies, was a sign of God's judgment. And the peace offering was an offering of gratitude for being able to love God and love others because God forgave, because God had healed, because God had delivered. This was the only sacrifice that the worshiper was also allowed to eat. In some ways, it's really how you took your family out to dinner in the first century. See, there were no restaurants. There was no way to preserve food. So if you wanted a family barbecue, you would take the animal to the priest as a peace offering, cut up the animal, kill it. Part of it would go to the priest, but the rest of it was yours to eat. And so you and your family would celebrate God's goodness around a meal, around the peace offering. It was designed to actually strengthen relationships around a meal of thanksgiving, of encouragement, of recommitment. You see, sin destroys, but this sacrifice restored and deepened relationships, both with God and with the community. Now, when I was confronted with having stolen the truck, I not only felt guilty, but I also felt dirty. I think what surprises us many times is that when we sin, there's a pollution to it. We're not just wrong, we feel dirty. And the fourth sacrifice was the purification offering. This offering was required when someone violated a direct commandment of God. And it was centered on the impurity caused by sin, particularly to the temple. The Israelites had this idea, or they understood, that when I sinned, the temple was the presence of God. And when I sinned, I polluted the temple where the presence of God was. And so this sacrifice was a means of cleansing the temple so that God's presence would remain. In this sacrifice, a very small part of the animal was burned on the altar. The rest of the animal was then taken outside the camp and it was burned. You could kind of think of it like this. Think of a sponge when you stick it in a bunch of water. You know, it soaks up the water. It was the same idea with this sacrifice. The sacrifice would soak up the pollution that was in the temple. And then it would be taken outside the camp and burned. None of the meat of this animal could be eaten. It was completely burnt. Now, there's a very interesting nuance to this sacrifice. It was very clear that this sacrifice was only for unintentional sin. 
See, in the Old Testament, there are two categories of sin. There's unintentional and intentional. Sins committed unintentionally could be forgiven, but not intentional sins. You might think, well, isn't pretty much all sin intentional? we got a big problem here. Well, there was a caveat to this sacrifice. That what the law prevented was the illusion that I could just sin, sacrifice, and not care about it. I had to confess my sin. There was this legal, what's the word I want? Um, There was this legal device that would turn an intentional sin into an unintentional sin. And that legal device was confession and repentance. Basically acknowledging my sin, which therefore could then be forgiven. We see Jesus talking about something very similar. When he said, sins against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven, but every other sin can. What Jesus is saying, what the Old Testament is explaining is, if you thumb your nose at God, there's no forgiveness. It's only when I confess, when I repent, does forgiveness then become possible to me. The sacrifice wasn't this magical thing. It was a process by which a repentant sinner could appeal to God for forgiveness. You see, sin destroys, but the sacrifice restores by actually cleansing sin's pollution. Also, in addition to incurring the wrath of my mom and my aunt, there was yet another problem to my sin. I had stolen something. There was a debt to be paid. And the fifth and the last sacrifice was the reparation offering. The offering required was required when anyone violated a commandment that required compensation. And that compensation could either be because I destroyed something of somebody's or I misused something that God said should be used only a particular way and I ignored him. This improper treatment of God's holy things. This offering both cleansed and it dealt with the damage caused by my sin. And the way the sacrifice worked is you would offer an animal, but there would also be money involved. You would have to compensate for what you destroyed, plus a 20% fine. You see, sin destroys, but this sacrifice brought freedom by paying off the debt. So let's recap what these five sacrifices show us. The burnt offering shows that our need for the removal of guilt due to sin. The cereal offering shows us that we need to satisfy God's wrath over our sin. The peace offering shows us that we need delivered from sin and its effects. 
The purification offering shows us that we need to be cleansed from the pollution caused by our sin. And the reparation offering shows us that we need to have the debt paid that our sin causes. Now that's just one sin. One single sin is our complete undoing. We're guilty. We're under God's wrath. We need deliverance. We've been polluted by our sin. And we owe an unpayable debt to the God of the universe. Do you grasp the helplessness of our situation before God? These five sacrifices provided a way to restore the relationship with God. But the Old Testament sacrifices, they came up kind of short on a few fronts. First, they were never a finished work. Every time you violated one of the commandments, you had to re-sacrifice an animal. You had to re-go through this process of dealing with the five consequences of your sin. There was no provision for dealing with a sin that you hadn't even committed yet. All the future sins yet to come. Every time they happened, you had to sacrifice. Secondly, these sacrifices were incomplete apart from Christ. Romans 3 explains it this way. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. The Old Testament sacrifices provided forgiveness for the Israelite, yet their sin could never be completely purged away by the blood of a goat or a sheep. They were sort of passed over. They, they were forgiven, but not yet. Because only in the death of Christ could sins be completely forgiven. Hebrews puts it this way, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, Christ is the better sacrifice that the Old Testament sacrifices both pointed to and actually helped to explain. Which leads us really to our point, is that sin destroys, but Christ's sacrifice completely restores. Sin destroys, but Christ's sacrifice completely restores. Let's just take a moment and look at the breadth of what Christ accomplished on the cross. His sacrifice dealt with all of these consequences to sin. Now, first off, the animal had to be pure. Well, Christ, the perfect son, obeyed the Father in everything. Every thought, every word, every deed Jesus did was perfect. 
He always did what he should have done. He never did what he shouldn't have done. Unlike us, he was perfect. He fulfilled the burnt offering. Our sin was actually placed on Jesus. But unlike the animal, the perfect righteousness of Christ is actually placed on us. In the sacrifice of Christ, there's an exchange. My sin given to Jesus, his righteousness is given to me. Securing my forgiveness for all time. That initial repentance before Christ means that all my future sin is taken care of. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we are now holy and we're acceptable to God. We're no longer guilty because of our sin. Paul summarized it for us like this in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made, he made him to be sin who know no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ fulfilled the cereal offering. Christ's broken body satisfied the wrath of God against sin. The result is we have peace with God. When God looks at you in Christ, he is not angry. When you picture the face of God, what do you see? Do you see a smile? Because that's what he's doing. We have now been adopted as children of God. Paul highlights this truth in Romans 5. He says, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath to come? We will no longer face the wrath of God ever. Christ fulfilled the peace offering. Christ has delivered us from our enemy, Satan. He's empowered us now to love. We are actually able to live out the great commandment and the great commission. God says we can live a beautiful life because of what Christ has done for us. We see the wonder of this in Colossians. It says God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, making peace by the blood of this cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. You're no longer a captive of Satan. Christ fulfilled the purification offering in the sense that he cleanses us. Not the old temple made with hands, but us, the new temple of God. He cleanses us, which enables the Holy Spirit to dwell within us in response to our confession and our repentance. As John said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit now dwells within. Christ fulfilled the reparation offering 
He's paid the debt that we owe God. We no longer carry that burden of sin. Paul puts this truth this way in Colossians. It says, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. We no longer have to repay God for the damage that we've caused by our sin. You see, Christ's sacrifice was completely sufficient. He accomplished all that these sacrifices pointed to. But you have to stop and remember, it took five sacrifices to begin to explain all that Christ accomplished for us in the cross. Just think about the last time you sinned. Christ has removed your guilt. He's satisfied God's wrath. You've been delivered from your enemy. You've been cleansed from the pollution of your sin. Your debt has been paid. That's all wrapped up in the forgiveness that God offers us in Christ. You see, when Jesus uttered those last words, it is finished, it really was. It's completely finished. And if you begin to think about the breadth of what Christ accomplished on the cross, it will throw gasoline on your love for God. When you begin to realize what he has done for us. A fellow named Thomas Manton, an old English Puritan clergyman, he put it this way. He said, when we look upon sin through Satan's glasses, the cloud of our own passions and our own affections, we don't make anything of it. But in the agonies of Christ and the sorrows and the suffering of his cross, we see the odiousness of it, that it might become hateful to us. No less remedy would serve than the agony's bloodshed and the accursed death of the Son of God to procure the pardon and the destruction of our sin. By this sin offering and ransom for our souls, we begin to see sin for what it really is. We tend to make light of sin, but Christ found it not so light a matter to atone for it. Sin destroys, but Christ's sacrifice completely restores. The next time you take communion, I want you to ponder the, the evilness and the destructiveness of your own sin and how all of it is forgiven in the finished and the accomplished work of Christ. We are great sinners but we have a greater Savior. The bread and the cup, they remind us of the two key elements of the sacrifice, the shed blood of an animal and the grain or the bread offering. But it was Christ's shedding of his blood and his broken body that accomplished all that we needed for salvation. You see, Christ took the punishment that you deserved. Christ appeased the wrath of God by taking it on himself. Christ delivered you from the enemy, Satan. 
Christ has cleansed you from the pollution of sin. Christ has paid the debt that you owe. Christ has completely dealt with your sin. All of it, once for all. It's truly finished. Where are you in relationship to Christ's sacrifice? I encourage you this morning to stop and ponder. Are you living with guilt and weight of your sin? You don't have to. You can be completely forgiven in Christ. All you need to do is pray and ask. But if you have placed your faith in Christ, allow your heart to glory in a Savior who has secured for you such a great salvation that in your own life you can say, it is finished. I'm no longer under the condemnation of God. I'm adopted as a son or daughter. I am forgiven. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you would love us that your son would be willing to lay aside all that he had in heaven and to become a man and to serve and to suffer and die. Lord, we'll never comprehend what your son faced when he went to the cross. But we're so grateful. We're grateful that you have dealt with the complexity of our sin, that it truly is finished. Lord, thanks for your grace. Thanks for your kindness. In Jesus' name. Amen.